internet, I always thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. My name is Matthew Kroll. And how's the people, Tommy? How's the people? My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Mr. Ripley's Believe It or Not, we're doing it this week. I'm very excited about this. We had a Twitter poll for this, which I know gets you really going. I love Twitter uh, polls. I love Twitter the, polls so much. It's the least amount of interaction for the most amount of, of bang. I think it's phenomenal. But this one went down to the wire. We even tweeting about the fact that we had a Twitter poll. The choices were a ghost story, a talent, the talented Mr. Ripley, yes. Scott Pilgrim, and Extraction, the new Chris Hemsworth picture. And I will freely admit i called some people i made some texts i slacked some people that i work with and i tipped my fingers on this i put my fingers on the scale and said i wanted the talented mr Ripley. oh what a dick <laughs> what a dick you know what i well, did you hear you know what i did as a fair and and <laughs> as a fair and balanced member of this duo i just tweeted everybody and talked to people and said hey we're doing a twitter poll and it's real close it'd be really great if you voted <laughs> That's literally <laughs> I did, I what did I say, did. It'd be great if you voted. And then I added, I love the talented Mr. Oh, Ripley. Oh, you're such a and, dick. And uh, it's both of our birthdays this week. Happy birthday, man. Happy birthday, Shahir. No, you're you're a you're a you're a mean birthday boy. Not no oh, no. And you're, not, not you're to a matter, mean one, Mr. Grinch. Not to matter. Look, there, every movie on here was excellent except for Extraction. And I have no <laughs> problem. And I haven't watched Extraction yet. I'm actually still very excited to watch Extraction. I've heard bad things. Yeah, I've I've not heard good things, and I got to say, uh, something about Chris Hemsworth fighting his way through India kind of rings me the wrong way. Hey, I don't know why. That, I don't that, know why. Couldn't you? you couldn't might be very be, onto something. It might not be anything there, and I don't think there is anything there. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I will watch it at some point. Yeah, I thought you know if we were gonna do dumb action movies though, I think I watched the first half hour of Six Underground very very late one night, and I was like, it was such a, a sugar rush to my brain that I was like. I need to like stop and watch this properly at some point because I do think Michael Bay has the capacity for genius and I really I just want to see what happens when you let the when you take the restraints off Michael Bay. What is he what is full-blown Bay him look like? Look, I'll watch anything Ryan Reynolds is in. That's right. straight up true. And I I was I'm I'm all on board to do 6 feet under. I think when we, when you brought that up I was like, well, it's not the like the the new release, which is why I was sort of like whatever and I do love Chris Hemsworth, not yeah. as much as I love Ryan Reynolds. I'm sorry, Chris. Yeah. Um I know that really burns. He was really hoping to get that top spot from me. <laughs> uh but no, I, I here's the, okay, so you just told us a secret, Shahir, about how well, you cheated. And that's fine. I didn't I'm going to you just admit it. I tweeted to people whom I know, who listen to the podcast, who happen to like the talented Mr. Ripley. I'm just going to say. I didn't force anyone to do anything they didn't want to do. Uh, no, no, but you, <laughs> Real you, Dr. you, you said yourself, you put your hand on the scale, a.k.a. <laughs> cheating. No one puts their hand on the scale. Come on, come on. Admit your admit what you did, but it's fine. And I'm glad, I'm glad you did it, Shahir. Do you want to know my dirty secret? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. You ready? Get your, um, <laughs> okay, yeah. here we go. <laughs> Uh, I've never seen before this the talented Mr. Ripley. Holy fuck. We've never wait, seen wait, the talented wait, Mr. Wait, Ripley. Wait. Yeah. 
So I've seen Scott Pilgrim, and I know I I know eventually we came down to it like a, a two way head to head battle. I you know I would have loved to have done a ghost story. I'm sure you would have loved to have done Extraction. Just to yeah, just to elaborate it out, they were you know like we definitely had two of each uh, uh, each of the films in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, but it became very clear early up front that uh, Talented Mr. Ripley and Scott Pilgrim were the ones that were gonna you know that most people were voting for. And I have seen Scott Pilgrim. I've actually seen Scott Pilgrim twice, and. I, it's a film that I I obvi- I admire deeply. I think it's brilliantly made. I think I think you know what Edgar Wright does only Edgar Wright can do. Sure. Um, and he can't do no wrong. He can only do Edgar Wright. Um, wow. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's not a film. It's a film that I find tiresome after about the halfway point. I mean that's and- that's totally fine. Yeah. So I'm, but 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 my point there is, I would love to revisit Scott Pilgrim at some point. I, yeah. I actually would love to have a conversation about it because it's a film that that I have like not quite come to terms with. Yeah, it, it's an interesting conversation because for as much as I love and admire the film, there are deep seated problems in the story itself, um, and there's nothing wrong with admitting that you can have a a, a love affair with a film that is not, uh, you know, absolutely flawless or, uh, you know. It hasn't aged entirely well, <clears throat> Austin Powers. But um, yeah, no, that's totally fine. And we'll do it one day. I have no, I have no qualms. No, I was honestly very excited to do the talented Mr. Ripley because it's funny. I don't think, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. In my head, because I kind of know the story because film school. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Like. I was like, oh, I've seen this. Like, in my, yeah. it, when we first started doing it. And then when it started, like, getting, when it was eking out, I was like, wait, have I? And then I sort of watched a bit of the trailer and I was like, oh, shit, I haven't seen this. Oh, my God. I would just, I, I guess, I wish I, you hadn't watched the trailer because I really would have. I stopped. I stopped. I, I, yeah, I, I wanted I, to see, I, wanted, I would have loved to, I, I guess we'll find out what the reveals feel like. Well, it's funny because I knew the first big one. Right. It's because, again, film school. Yeah. Um but the and we'll get into sort of what those are. But yeah, uh, it was a very good experience. I, I sat down last night and watched it. And it was it was it was a delightful roller coaster ride. Uh, and it made me miss all of my my favorite actors uh, when they were young. <laughs> well, let's get into that because I think we're gonna have a conversation about perfect films at some point during this uh, during this podcast discussion. Could, but could it be in the emails? Some, we have some emails that uh, relate to our ongoing conversation about perfect films. Uh, do you want to take the first one, or should I take the first I'll one? I'll take do the here? first one. Let's see. Go, go nuts. First and foremost. Oh, the first one is from Dotun uh, chiming in again, uh, thanking us for answering his question before. But then he says to answer your question in the platform. I 100% agree with oh with Matt oh, about a, a perfect movie going experience. Last May, me and a group of buddies went to Nashville after all just graduating college. We had some time to kill one afternoon, so we went to the movies and we all watched Booksmart. Watching that movie with a group of close friends right at the point of graduating was honestly perfect. Given we were the only people in the theater too, it was even better. Honestly, I understand that there are flaws in the film, but I cannot see them and I think this movie will forever hold a place in my heart as perfect. Love the podcast and as always keep up the good work. Thank you, Dotoon. Um yeah, I I um I have had a couple – I talked about it a little bit before, but I've had a couple of those experiences, and that's why I sort of – I really like gravitating toward the the perfect movie experience part okay. of the conversation. 
I, I, the only part of that that I disagree with is that it works in the opposite direction as well, which is that you could have an amazing film that you have a terrible experience seeing, and does that ruin the film for you? And I, a little bit. Yeah, you, and, and, I, and, and I think that, that, you know, like as, as critics and reviewers and, you know, you know, we should think about that. But I, I do agree that there's something to be discussed about, like, the way in which we watch a movie. It's certainly part of the experience and it can it can give us context for how we view a movie. Well, I mean, to be honest, until we invent the technology and I'm waiting on this scientists to uh, basically inject a film into the entirety of our conscious, our surroundings and our situations and our meat uh, suit uh, needs will always be integrated into any viewing experience that we have at all. So, of course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, isn't that the plan of the Riddler in Batman and Robin? Oh, Batman Forever. That was uh, Riddle's yeah. plan. It was Jim Carrey's plan. He would like he would inject the uh, the the movie straight into your brain. Exactly. Inject TV, TV straight, straight into, into your brain. brain, and then he'd steal all your mind juice. Uh, also, shout out to the Uvra Busters uh, doing their Batman series. I believe they covered that one. They actually also covered the talents of Mr. Ripley, uh, which they have an episode about. So if you listen to us and you hate what you hear, check out Oeuvre Busters, who have an entire episode on the talents of Mr. Ripley, and the entire series on Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is in the talents of Mr. Ripley. And if you really liked their podcast series, come listen to us. And I know oh, that's so go weird there, saying go it. Go there, come back. Well, and then I go don't back know how again. we do it. I'm trying to sort of send that through the, through the <laughs> mind waves, uh, through the, the magic of uh, the Riddler's TV box. Uh, we got another email from Stephen uh, from New Zealand, but I will not read this one out. It was highlighting the differences between the UK and the US experience of seeing uh, Terry Gilliam's film Brazil. And the reason I won't read this one out is that I saw Brazil for the first time just last year, and it is mind blowing. So it I would slaps. not want to ruin that. Would not want to ruin that experience for anyone. Thank you for that email, Stephen. Uh, pointing out the censored. <laughs> yeah, you have been. Censored. Yeah. Uh, but one more email. This is a little bit of a long one, but I'm going to try and do it because I had a similar experience with this exact film. And this is from Jacob, who is telling us about his perfect movie-going experience. The date is November 12, 2016. I'm on a weekend jaunt with my parents, my brother, and his wife to Palm Springs. A fun, hot afternoon of swap meat shopping is winding down, and the rest of the family is planning to go to church. You do love swap meat, she hears, so I know I that this is... I do love swap yeah. meats, and I do love Palm Springs. I... Like Jacob, I'm not a church-going person, and I was trying to figure out something to do besides relax in the soothing hum of hotel air conditioning. I decided to decide to walk around town where the church is. We are in the car, stopped at an intersection. I see a cinema in the distance to my left. Wait, a movie. That's what I need. A good movie. I look up to the theater. I look at the films. Huh. Arrival? I saw some article uh, write something about that once. I checked the times. It's going to be closed. The lights turn green. Dad, pull over. I'm going to see this movie. Bye. I jump out of the car. The entrance to the theater is the other side of the mall. It's going to be closed. I am jog sprinting. I get my ticket. The theater is pretty full, but there are some open solo center center seats. I sit down, but for a few moments before the film begins, I feel the energy of the crowd. I don't know what this movie is about, and the violins fade, and the camera pans down from the abyss of black, and I have the most cathartic experience of my life. It was religious uh, and that's when i knew that i was hearing stories that other human com humans are compelled to tell compelled to put on a huge screen and taken in by uh, any and all and that experience is my church i love that email that's a good email um, 
Great email. Thank you very much, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, it's, it, it resonated so much with me, not only because of uh, the idea that uh, movies can be a religious experience, which I believe, which is the way I feel about movies, despite being not a religious person. There's a great book by uh, Cinema as Religion or something like that. I, I believe that's titled by uh, a po- fellow podcaster, Josh Lashen of the Film Spotting uh, Podcast, has written. Um, and uh, I, I have not read it yet, but I just love that title. Um, and uh, I had a similar experience, which is that I, and I think I've talked about this, is that I was in Amsterdam when I saw Arrival and I had to like bike around Amsterdam in the yes. middle of the night to get to a film festival and I got there and I watched the movie and there's a scene in Arrival where the we finally hear what the aliens are saying but in the film screening I went to it was translated into de- into Dutch um, so I never understood what they were saying and it was exactly what the movie was about so I I fully uh, appreciate that but I did see revisit that movie and it's amazing yeah. anyway thank you very much for those emails on your perfect movie going experiences we really love those please keep emailing us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod you took the words right out of my mouth Dug my hands right in there and grabbed them. Uh, you did, but you know what? You can't have these ones. I'm going to give you the IMDb movie description of the talented Mr. Ripley. Here we Mr. go. Mr. Ripley. In late 1950s New York, Tom Ripley, a young underachiever, is sent to Italy to retrieve Dickie Greenleaf, a rich and spoiled millionaire playboy. But when the errand fails, Ripley takes extreme measures. They are certainly extreme. And, this uh, is a bad synopsis write up both what? dramatically what? and kind of what the movie's about well how is it okay it's ignored grammatically because we don't know who writes these what's what what do you mean what the movie's about what, well what's, what's incorrect about that it's just it, it starts sending you through a lot of sort of the the information that's not quite important to the plot not that i want this to give story beats away but what's like not important about what they just said in 1950s new york tom ripley a young underachiever is sent to italy well can it just be tom ripley a young underachiever is sent to italy like what new york does not play a huge role in this film I mean, it starts in New York. He's it sure does. To, he comes from somewhere else, right? Like, he's but not just going to Italy. I'm just saying most of the descriptions don't normally start, like, in in, in Philadelphia, born and raised. No. Um, <laughs> the Although that song literally does it. That's not a good thing for my point. But the anyway, the <laughs> yeah, other thing is... Yeah, because it goes to California. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, And then, of course, I guess, but when the errand fails, Ripley takes extreme measures is a bit of a MacGuffin. Because, like, that's not why extreme measures are taken. Well, I don't know. I mean, do you want to go into the psychological reasoning of why he does, does the actions? Which here's I think the, is what the movie's about. Of course. And here's here's the thing. It's really hard to write a two-sentence description without giving stuff away of a thriller. Yeah. Uh, so you get a pass, IMDb, on this <laughs> yeah. one. But I didn't enjoy it. Like Ryan Reynolds, I'm sure they appreciate it. Uh, oh no, Ryan, it's Chris of course, Ryan Reynolds, email us in onlymoviepodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Um, so I'm going to tell you another perfect movie experience, but not necessarily a perfect movie, uh, a single perfect movie experience. But I, uh, this movie came out in 1999. Uh, I had come to, I, like Eddie Murphy, I had come to America to uh, sow his royal oats. No, uh, but to to go to film school, and I lived across the street from a movie theater. And 1999, as recently as written by Brian. Rafferty, who'd written his book, uh, uh, Best Movie Year Ever, has been described as one of those unique years in American cinema.
cinema. Uh, and I was at the movies every weekend uh, while uh, <laughs> while living in America because I'd, I'd never quite lived that close to a movie theater before. Like for me, going to a movie theater was kind of like an experience, uh, you know, like always a journey. But it was the first yeah. time ever I could just like literally get up and go to the movies. And I could I could also spend all day there if I wanted to. Um, and the movies I, I remember this was the sequence of movies I saw and I, I don't remember the exact order but I remember these were the movies it was Run Lola Run American Beauty The Insider Fight Club Magnolia and The Talented Mr. Ripley yeah that's a and good I, bunch that is like I, I remember that being every weekend that, those were, I also think I the, the one movie that <laughs> didn't quite hold up was uh, The Legion of 1900 I think is the Giuseppe Tintorini film if I'm pronouncing his name can, correctly can we do Run Lola Run sometime oh I love Run that Lola movie Run. was so formulative for me uh, oh yeah I love that I think that might have been the first DVD I ever owned yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I own it on Blu-ray, and I actually haven't cracked the Blu-ray open. I, I, had, I do have... I think I, I feel like that's a movie I've seen clips from more than I've actually watched the movie in its entirety. Um, but of all of those movies were movies that I would come to own on DVD and watch repeatedly over and over, obviously, uh, except for Run, Roll, Run. Um, but the talented Ripley, Mr. Ripley, you know, I think I was taking a class on Hitchcock at the time, and so I was very... Uh, uh, becoming immersed in the in uh, the the sort of formative works of the grandmaster Alfred sure. Hitchcock, and this was you know and and the thing the, the sort of when you take a f- a, a film class like that, the, there is a sort of prevailing thought process that happens, which is that they don't make them like this. You know, like when you're watching the, you know, the films of John Ford or David Lean or anything like that, you always sort of get into this thing of like, nobody makes movies like this anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it was an unusual experience to like be, be watching, you know, a lot of Hitchcock movies, particularly, and the films, the, the Hitchcock movie that really, you know, um, uh, comes to mind is Shadow of a Doubt. Um, and, and obviously, uh, Strangers on a Train, which was also written by Patricia Highsmith, who also wrote uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Sure. Um, it's very unusual to go to the movies and see something that is clearly indebted to the work of a of a filmmaker you're studying, but also embodies it in a way that isn't just homage. Mm. So it's more than just being a replica, you know, a replica of that. It's more than just feeling like it's it's riffing on Hitchcock. And I, you know, I don't know if Hitchcock is the exact reference that they're going for right. here, but. But it is kind of amazing to sort of feel that sense. And the other side of this is, of all the movies that I listed before, American Beauty, The Insider, Magnolia, um, Fight Club in particular, those were all films that were embracing the sensibilities of the onslaught of technology of 1999 and, you know, hitting into 2000. Ripley, on the other hand, and, and Run, Lola, Run as well. You know, like these are movies yeah. that are that are mixed media, that, that you know, play with structure, that, that you know, uh, play with new technology. Ripley, on the other hand, is throwback in almost every single way, not only from the setting point of view, but also just from the fact that it, it's a the the type of movie, the type of story it's telling. Obviously, I've already referenced Hitchcock. Feels very much like a throwback. Sure. Um. And and the, I I find that I still find that striking. And then, you know, it was my birthday last night, and you know, I did want this movie really badly, and I was I really wanted to sit down and enjoy this movie. And we were asked on Twitter if we would do uh a, you know a Netflix viewing party of this after we won, and I was like, I would love to, but I also just want to have a completely distraction-free viewing of this film. So I was, I, you know, obviously, uh, I think you can probably guess by now, I love this film. And what was amazing to me is 
how perfectly out of the context of 1999, out of the context of where I came from, just how much I think this film holds up and how much, even if it doesn't hold up for you, maybe I don't know, how much I love this film. Fun fact, it can't hold up for me because I watched it for the first time. Of course. Uh, But you know what's interesting? Okay, so minor, minor spoiler, I guess, for the talented Mr. Ripley. The one thing I knew was there was a murder on a boat. (laughs) Um, And that was it. So when I started watching it, it took me like a good 20 minutes to realize it was in the 50s. Huh. Doesn't like it open in the fifties? Doesn't it open? Oh, sure, like... but like I just wasn't processing it. I was like, okay, so this person's playing a fancy, uh, uh, you know, uh, presentation Hobby over the boy. park, <laughs> and then they're, you know, is, uh, oh Stanford, so like hoity-toity. I'm like, okay, so these are rich people. Rich people tend to sound the same no matter what year it is. <laughs> uh, and then they go to Italy, and Italy when I was there in 2012, 2013, a lot of the places that he went, weirdly enough. Uh, it felt the same. So I was yeah. like, okay, like time didn't affect it until I think they go to a jazz club or something. And I'm like, it says like jazz 58 or something. And I was <laughs> like, oh, oh, this is in the 50s. So were you just like waiting? Were you, were you just wondering like, why didn't Dickie's dad just send him a text message? <laughs> like, were you, no, or an email? I think, I think <laughs> that, you know, it's, maybe it's an interesting side uh, bar too, because, you know, I was also marveling at, the the style of the cinematography of the time it did feel very 90s you know john seal right Who, yeah uh, was the cinematographer uh, so so like i just was sort of like in my head i was like oh this is an older movie this is a 20 years ago movie right oh okay yeah fair enough, fair enough. uh but then i didn't quite catch that it was <laughs> the, the, it 50s. Was the 50s and then afterward i was like oh cool <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I very much enjoyed this this first viewing of this of this classic that I thought I had seen, I, I, and and we'll get into a little bit more of the spoilers later. But um, obviously, Matt Damon, phenomenal uh, in, in this film. The presentation of as as the movie goes on, you you get you get like more involved with the character of Tom Ripley, I think then I've seen in most, in, in most, uh, even if not done like correctly or like, or, or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, as, uh, politically correct as one could do. Uh, I think it's done in a highly intimate level. And I was, you know, here he is doing some questionable things and your, your judgment of him sort of shifts throughout the entire film. But, like, you always felt, no matter what, weirdly, at least I did, like, kind of in his corner. Mm-hmm. And that's an odd thing. Like, for, let's even go back to, like, Fight Club. Like, mm-hmm. I undulated in that film between a lot of people's different corners. Yeah. And this movie, I was always like, nope. I'm with this one. This is my person here. Like whether or not I am agreeing with what he's doing or not. Like no, we're. I am with him now. Uh, it's funny. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think the thing when I watched it when I was yeah obviously 20 years old. You know, like this movie is 20 years old now, and so that's kind of the the math checks out. Um, is that 
Ripley, when I was when I was younger and I watched it, I identified with Ripley because of the filmmaking prowess in terms of like getting us in the headspace of the decisions he's making, and like Hitchcock, making us feel the terror that he's feeling even when he's doing something terrible. Mm. Like I think that's a that's a remarkable stroke that this film has. You know, the ability to put us in his shoes. You know, like I'm I'm reminded of I think it was in uh, Hitchcock's film Frenzy when the 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 main character. I don't know if he's the main character, but a character who turns out to be the murderer mm. um, basically has to dispose of a body, and we get stuck in the back of a truck just with him, and he's trying to dispose of this body in the sack of potatoes. And what Hitchcock does is makes us fearful for him getting discovered, him yeah. him being discovered. You know, it's that amazing ability to kind of like uh, get us to embody the the tenets of a protagonist who we will find morally questionable um and i you know like the second half of this movie is basically that every single time and it's kind of amazing how it does it yeah um i was curious though because i while i love the movie and i love every minute of this movie and i wouldn't change a frame of this thing i did feel that it's you know like compared to what we might expect today and we're you know like certainly a more media saturated world and and it's easier to be distracted this is a long movie. It's two two hours and two and a quarter hours, I think. Yeah. And and the the first half and the back half are almost like two entirely different movies. Sure. Like you know, it, it takes it, it. It's it's a big movie. Well, I, uh, it's a big movie, but also I do want to comment it from. Uh, I mean, I and I please, I'm not trying to step on the toes of our resident uh, newbie to a cinematic experience, Jessica Tucker, whom you can hear in our Final Fantasy uh, Seven Advent Children Complete episode. She's done a lot of stuff with us where it's her first time watching a film, so maybe uh, this is sort of relatable uh, from her. She can write us in, let us know. Um, but uh, I did not think the runtime was a problem. I didn't think of the runtime once. Um, Good, and I think great. that comes from a first viewing. I, I remember, you know, it's interesting. I had to use uh, the restroom, so I paused yeah. it, and it was like at the 40-minute mark. And yeah. normally in a film that I see that I feel like I've been really interested in investing, I'm like, oh, this is great, and I've been going for a, a bit, I'd see that and be like, ugh. And here I was like, ooh, good. <laughs> like yeah, I was very, I was very, uh, I was very happy to see that I had like an hour and forty minutes left or whatever. It's it's funny because I I put it on really late and but I was just like I I when I knew that I would be watching it I was so excited for the rest of the day that I was like just gearing up my whole day just to sit down to watch this movie yeah. and I only managed to get to it I think at eleven thirty at night was the like the time I could actually put it on and I thought I would be tired but I was like I'm just in this movie and I never you know like. I'm watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy right now, and I'll you know spoilers for whatever whenever whenever that review comes out. There's a lot of times in Lord of the Rings where I'm like you know reaching for my phone to like tr- you know look at something, and and that yeah entirely blasphemous. But that that never happened during this movie. That never occurred. I never once actually I never took my eyes off the screen. Um, and I I mean I think what I'm saying is it's long as in there's a lot of movie here but it moves at a pace like it rips along um, <laughs> rip rip and it ripplies along it ripplies along and there's so much about this movie I want to talk about but but I so I just I'm I'm very curious before we you know get me to nerd out on this whole thing like what are your kind of like you you kind of said you really enjoyed the movie what what about this movie challenged you or what did this movie kind of like you know really dra- dragged you in so the interesting thing is i don't think and and this could come from looking at this movie 20 years later but then really 70 years later from when it takes place i don't quite know 
I think why this film worked for me so well is that it, this sounds weird, but it didn't challenge me. Huh. Uh, this was a purely visceral, cerebral, like, underpinning, uh, and it made it so easy to relate with a character that I didn't like on a logical level. If that makes sense. And I'm just saying from choices that he made, not that he was uh, generally unlikable. He was odd, but, you know, yeah, whatever. Um, this movie made it, and that that's, I think, where the craft really, and, and it's so funny, the craft shined by not shining, like, or shining shining light on, on the story itself and not, like, actually how it was made. Because, you know, when you go back and watch older films, even, you know, to even 10 years ago, you kind of have to be lulled into the flow state of, like, how media was back then. And this had mm -hmm. that, too. But then instantly, once I was in it, it was just, it was, it was doing the heavy lifting, right? Like, it was getting me on board with things that I didn't think I'd be able to get on board with, or in retrospect, I should say. Um character decisions where I was more concerned how is he going to get out of this one than, yeah, this fucking guy needs to go to jail. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, and and that's that's very adept, skillful storytelling uh, in this medium. I mean, it's funny, there were even parts in the beginning where um, uh, when, when Dickie and him are like after they're close, um, that he like asked me, he's like, you're not really from, uh, you know, or was it Harvard, Harvard. Stanford, yeah. Harvard, Harvard. Uh, he's like, you're not really from it. And then like, he's just cool with it. <laughs> and then they like hang out for another month. I, I remember thinking like for a second, I was like, well, that's really fucking unrealistic. And then I was like, no, well, but this is really fun. And like, that's actually the order of how it happens. That happens right before, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ripley does what he's about to do. No, it no, it doesn't. That Remo. happens. Nope, it happens at a uh, cafe uh, when they go on their first trip or second trip. It's not I'm, in the boat. Gonna, it's not I'm in the gonna, boat. No, no, no. It doesn't happen on the boat. It happens at the jazz festival in San Remo when uh, when Dickie basically tells Tom this is going to be our last jaunt, and this is the point at which Tom and and Dickie are kind of you know. Dickie is kind of like done with Tom at this point and he's just trying to be nice and and he's saying to him, "Look, I know this is our last uh, you know, last couple of nights together. You know, tell me, did you really ever go to Harvard? You know, I didn't think so. And did you ever re you know, did you ever re what was the other thing that he I I forgot what the other thing was, but the he you know, and he gets up and he walks away and he goes, "I knew it. Marge and I had had a bit going the whole time." And this is this is the unraveling point at which Ripley decides that, well, he doesn't decide, but this is the point at which Ripley, you know, tries to intimate that there's potentially a relationship and he's trying to cling on to this idea that there's a relationship uh -huh. and Tom and, and Dickie has completely abandoned the idea. Sure, but there's a bit that happens before they get on the boat after that. I'm saying <laughs> it just felt... I get what you're saying. In the moment, and again, it didn't bother me too much. It was just like, what I, my, my point of bringing that up was there were a few character moments where I was like, that's not how I would think this would go down with a person or like is a and, but like they they get you involved so deeply in Tom's sort of psyche that all of those sort of minor I don't know if I can even call them gripes like just sort of wash away and again I I go back to this is a very easy film to watch. It's it's yeah. complex to 
to disseminate or, or, or break apart sort of meanings, of course, but, uh, but it, to just experience it, it was just sort of like, aha, like I was just I, there. I think the first uh, 20 minutes for me, I think, is always a little clunky. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, like Ripley, uh, you know, like he borrows this jacket and Dickie's dad is just so uh, impressed with him that he decides to, like, send them on this trip to Italy. First, you know, first class, like, all expenses paid. And then we're, you know, we're in Ripley's, you know, little uh, basement level apartment where he's trying to figure out uh, what jazz is like. You know, I just I find that stuff a little clunky. And I will admit. I find Matt Damon at the first half of this still a little clunky as well. Like, remember, the thing about Matt Damon at this point is that, you know, like, he's coming off Goodwill Hunting. I think he's done Courage Under Fire at this point. So he is getting gaining a reputation both as a leading man and, uh, a te- you know, a technically crafted actor. You know, like a guy who can pull off something um, as technically sort of challenging as Courage Under Fire was, um, you know, the Edward Zwick film where he lost like a ton of weight and played a drug addict uh, opposite Meg Ryan. And I think Denzel Washington's in that as well. Um, and then, you know, he does something like Goodwill Hunting and it's like, oh my God, this guy can write as well. He wins the Oscar. And his, he's experimenting with like, you know, uh, losing a lot of weight for roles. You know, he's kind of typically a little bit more of a husky kind of big fella. He's bailing it he's, up. And then he lo- yeah, he loses a lot of weight. So he's kind of get that. And, and I find that there's something about his performance at the beginning of this film that feels like an affectation. You know, it feels like he's putting it on. The brilliant thing about this movie, though, is that as we learn throughout the, the later parts of this film, is that it is all an aff- affectation. You know, like the way Ripley behaves in the real world is uh, uh, put upon. You know, like he is kind of acting at all times. Um, and so it, it's only like basically there's only one or two moments later in the film where we hear and feel the real Ripley. And the the, the real Ripley is like desperately insecure and, and wanting to be loved. I don't and think so there that is a real half, Ripley. Um. I th- I I can I can point to two moments where I think I see the absolute real Ripley. And I think that's the that's the genius of this film though as well as when we watch it we're watching it trying to figure out who this person is even though he does terrible things. We're invested in 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 going along the ride for him. Um I don't know. Can you do, tell do me you... what those two things are? I mean we're we're about a half hour in. We should probably get into like spoilery discussions because the meaning is going to sort of stem from that. I'm curious well, what those two moments are for you. So the 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 visual moment for me happens right after the real moment, you know, like the, the the sort of disparate and insecure thing. And this is all the boat scene. Um, and on the boat, you know, when he kind of like finally lashes back at Dickie for like um, uh, for 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 in his mind tempting him, yeah, no, or for for basically like reeling in his friendship and then and then wasting it you know like that is the angry insecure um and it, it's sort of nonsensical because dickie ultimately doesn't owe tom anything right and and tom is angry about that tom you know tom kind of walks around in the world and you know i think one of the brilliant things that this movie does and and it's it's, it's only because i'm viewing it now from a 2020 perspective is that it is a sort of a real distillation of class like many movies that we're watching it is a distillation of like this idea that there are people who uh have things that that other people feel like they deserve and i'm gonna i'm gonna pull a quote from anthony Minghella, who you know obviously wrote and directed the film rest mm-hmm. in peace um and and you know this is a the sort of a direct quote of like the way he was thinking about it and i think to me resonated as well is that uh he's speaking here of ripley his actions are an extreme response to emotions all of us recognize the sense that there is a better life being lived 
by somebody else, somewhere else, someone not trapped inside the hollow existence in which we find ourselves. Uh, it's one of the things that makes us human. We've all been Tom Ripley, just as we've all known a Dickie Greenleaf, the man who has everything, whose attention makes us feel special. We've all basked in the sunshine of that attention and felt the chill of losing it. And what's happening in that moment on the boat is he's completely losing it. You know, he's losing that sense of attention that he gets. And he's also, you know, like he is a guy who loves the finer things in life, but has never been able to, to attain them. So in a way, while he's he's like incomprehensibly attracted to Dickie, like he loves it. And, 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 you know, it's hard to see why not. Like Dickie is luminous, you know, like a, a friend of mine, you know, when we were that age, described Dickie as like, uh, as, as you know, ex- the most extraordinary re- um, representation of male beauty. And I never quite saw it until I watched it last night. And I was like, oh, my God, it's like staring into the sun when you look at young Jude Law. Um, but the so, you know, that insecurity that comes out before he finally lashes out, I think that's the real the real Tom. And then the moment after that, which I was just like staggered by it, I had forgotten it. Um, uh, it's the moment where we just see the boat in the water and Tom is embracing Dickie, uh, you know, like, uh, like lovers would. And it's just this moment. I was like, this is everything that Tom has ever wanted. And this is the way he's gotten it. And it's disturbing. It's haunting. It's, it's, but it's, it's truly probably in the movie, the happiest he's ever been. Um, wow. There's a lot in there to unpack that I read entirely differently. Okay, tell me. Uh, I gotta. I'm sorry. I gotta keep track. First and foremost, the class. The class discussion. Uh, nowhere in this film did I ever feel like Tom Ripley was abs- was was longing for uh, a, a climb up the social ladder. Hmm. I found it more that he was honestly trying to lash out and or latch on to another person's life. It didn't actually like cuz nothing ever nothing ever felt to me like uh like the 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 affluence was more of a convenience. Like he lucked into this weird situation and now he's with these people. He doesn't have that many friends. Now he has these two rich friends. Cool. Like and like it never felt to me he felt to me like he just wanted to be more of the person that that uh, that Dickie was, not the like, and I mean that as like someone who people look at and would want to be around or seem uh, effervescent or or whatnot. I never gathered from his entire thing that the the actual money, other than being a tool, was like what he was like always strived for, like. Because I never saw any of that in the beginning because we don't really see a ton of what of who he actually is. In fact, again, I, I still stand by my thing. I don't think I ever saw who he actually was. And I think that's important to at least my read of the film. Um, second thing, uh, I hate Dickie. I get, the, I get the role that Jude Law is playing. And I get what... The, that that person you read their their quote was going for because we all have had experienced that person and I understood because the film is done so well that Dicky is supposed to be that person. I never felt that with Dicky. I was consistently annoyed with him. I didn't like it whenever he spoke. I, but I, I but again, a credit to the film, the way it presents him, showing him through kind of the lens of 
of uh, Tom's purview and 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 emotion and feeling and want to be that person or, or to be around that person um, made it very effective. But I just I if I if I looked at Dicky if I looked at Jude Law's character in like a, in a in a petri dish on its own I'd just be like ugh. Um, it was it was very just not not effective for me in that regard. And then the final thing, just about those two moments about sort of seeing the real the real Tom. The 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 in the boat scene, it is beautiful and it is haunting. I just took that as shock. Um because nowhere in the movie I, I always took this as a I took this as a, always since yesterday I took this as a story of a person who literally felt like there was that they were nobody. There's even the great quote that I said in the beginning of just being like they're just they're nobody. They don't exist. They're not important. Wouldn't it be nice to be somebody? And I don't th- I didn't take that as a as a socioeconomic thing though. You know it could be taken as that way. Sure. I think it's more like I'm jealous of this or jealous or want to be around or be accepted by a popular well-liked person and then when that falls apart obviously things go downhill and i don't know if again i i i think the other characters are developed enough where you know sort of their personality or where they stand i don't know if just crippling insecurity is enough of a it's not it, that to me is not a pure character. That's just a trait. So like I don't know. I couldn't tell you, and I think it's important that I couldn't tell you based on the way the story is told, who Tom Ripley is. Like even uh, what character is it? Sorry, I'm I'm blanking on this. That asks was is it is it um is it Freddie Frankie Freddie Freddie who's Freddy, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. yeah is does he ask him? He's like what is. What do you like, or what do you like? Someone, someone berates him, and it might have been, it might have been uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, so at some point, like berates him about who he is, and he can't quite answer it. Um, right. Like, yeah. Anyway, I, 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 and I, I really latched on to the idea that, like, oh wow, this this film is powerful uh, for a lot of reasons, but one in particular is uh, that I never actually thought. I was seeing a non-acted person, which is a great leap of of skill for an actor to do. Here's an actor in real life playing a person who's consistently acting like one, two, or three other people, and I'm never really seeing the veneer or never getting the feeling or being annoyed that I'm not seeing the feeling of one particular of, – of an individual character. Okay. So what 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 did you read? I mean, what are you the film is kind of asking you the the opening and closing shot is this sort of drift around, you know, Tom's head. Yeah. Um, you know, light emerging from light into darkness. What did you what do you make of Tom by the end of the movie? Uh I I literally an entirely lost human being. Yeah. But and, and and in that I am presented with someone whom I feel for but also have known did horrible things but also I couldn't tell you a fucking thing about them. 
So, and, okay, so that's an interesting thing. What do you, what do you mean by that? You couldn't tell me anything about them. I I don't. Uh, let's see. Every other character in this movie has an interest or a vice or um or or, or some sort of characteristic that that sort of uh, uh clothing choices or way that they speak or something that sort of latches me on I'm like oh these are character points uh Ripley is the only thing that he has that I that I can sort of latch onto is wanting to be around people that have those things because he himself doesn't seem to have them for some reason. I mean, it right. even comes down to like, it even comes down to in the beginning of the film, the whole reason this whole thing starts is because he doesn't have his own jacket. Yeah. And he's, he puts on, he puts on a Harvard jacket, you know, yeah. like it's the, it's the, it's the Harvard jacket. And I think he's in me, a costume the, from the first moment we see him. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, he's wearing an outfit. He's playing a part r- right from the get go. Yep. And he is a person that I, I think has a belief that if the right circumstances are presented to him, he will be part of classes that he will never be part of. You know, that's, a, this is the sort of, where did you get that of- from? Cause I'm curious. Cause I, I didn't read that at all. That that he wouldn't be part of, like the the fact that um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character says you know like she has that beautiful scene with him when he gets the apartment in Venice and she's like look at you now you know like before you couldn't even get your own jacket and now to the manor born Freddie even says to him a little bit later um, you know like when he's giving him direction he says you know again a month ago you were just some guy in New York and now you're giving me directions around Italy if these people you know like the fact that he gets disinvited to the ski party you know like he is he is a person that is never going to be part of this class they're, they're far beyond what he is ever going to be capable of unless unless he becomes rich by some sort of miracle of circumstance but what you're saying and, is before sorry even before all this it was that you felt that he always thought that he could do that if just given the chance i yeah. never i never got that that drive from him thinking that he could always do that it just all sort of happened to him like do you think that he takes pleasure in playing dicky yes because he gets to be a another human being who is a popular human being and a right. respected so- human being so, it, but it, it, in your mind, it doesn't. I mean, does it have anything to do with the money and the sort of affect of it? He even has a scene. Uh, he has a scene immediately when he meets up with uh, Meredith, uh, yep. Kate Blanchett's character, oh. and they talk about the fact that they're they're you know like they say you you can only detest money if you've been raised into it. And he's kind of got this wry smile about it, and she says, "I've never told anyone that," and he agrees that you know like we don't us people who are born into this life don't tell other people that. Um, you know, like, I think Tom has a real clear understanding of where his place in, is in life. And the minute he gets to, to basically, in, you know, in, you know, play Dickie, he gets to be Dickie. Sure. Um, he relishes in it, you know, cause it is. And, and I think there's a part of him, you know, like that, 
that believes that fundamentally, unlike Dickie, who doesn't appreciate the things that he has, is that he is a man of taste. You know, Tom is a man of, you know, like he, he like Dickie's dad, he detests jazz. He thinks it's just insolent noise. But he loves, he loves music and he plays music and he believes in the power of music. You know, he practices the piano religiously. It's a, it's a job, it's performance for him. So he loves Jack Davenport's character, who is a musician, you know, who actually does perform concertos. Yep. Um, he, you know, and the thing that I, uh, there's a scene, there's a little detail that I loved watching this time around that I don't know if it's an intentional mirror, but I thought it was just really beautiful, was that there's a sort of mirror, you know, like, again, this is a Hitchcockian style film, so the idea of mirrored personalities, you know, like Dickie and Tom are kind of like two parts of the of the same puzzle, you know, like, so to speak, and there's that scene on the train where we see them mirrored against each other and they kind of have the same face. There's a beautiful thing in this film which they do, which is that uh, Tom, when he's playing Dickie, parts his hair in the other direction, you know, so it's yep. like flipping one side to the other. Um, but there's a close up, there's a sort of a mirrored close up that happens, and uh, where when um, uh, Dickie and Tom are watching the the sort of celebrate the Italian the, the the religious cere uh, ceremony that's happening mm -hmm. in Mangia, and uh, Dickie's lover Silvana um, turns up in the you know has committed suicide and turns up in the water, and there's this close up of Dickie's eyes, and he doesn't shed a tear. He like he he's he's really close to crying, but he just does not cry. He's got this sort of like, you know, uh, he's not entirely affected by this whole thing. And there's a mirrored close up when uh, Tom goes to the opera with Meredith, uh, and they're watching. I think it's uh, Eugene Onegin, and he, yeah, Eugene Onegin. It's the same close up. Tchaikovsky, right? Yeah, but it's the same close up. But Tom cries. He weeps. He loves it. You know, like he talks about the fact that you couldn't drag uh, Dickie to the opera, but he absolutely, you know, like he is invested in the opera. You know, he jokes about the fact is that there there isn't enough room on Freddie's uh, chest to tattoo the opera on on him or something like that. He knows that these people like flit around on this in this world that and don't have a full appreciation of the things that they have, and he relishes in those things. He loves Dickie's ring. He goes to the same stores and gets things embossed. He buys the jacket. You know, he is, he, he, you know, fully embodies that world. And by the end of the film, I think the, the sort of genius of this movie is that at the very end, he gets away with it. Like he fully, he, he just about gets away with it where, you know, he's given Dickie's money. And he can basically now be Tom with Dickie's money. But of course, he has built himself into this hole and he, you know, like he can't do that anymore. He's got to go back to playing Dickie. But I think um, I think that and that's the hole he buries himself in. But and that's I think also that's I think the hole that he I think that's kind of almost solidifies how I felt about the entire thing was that like. He now has the money and he can do it. He can be Tom and he could. But. But at the same time, I don't think there is a Tom. Like, I think he needs to be pretending or to be playing something. And I mean, isn't that the tragedy, though, of that final, of that final oh, sequence? Oh, 100%. When... I think we're just coming, I think we're agreeing on the, the effectiveness of it. I think what we're disagreeing on is, is the motivations, the specific motivations that cause Tom Ripley to do the horrible things and be and and have the things happen around him and continue to move like a like a shark that can't sleep because it needs to keep swimming. Um, where I think where... the the thing that I'm talking about is solidified in a couple of the other adaptations of Ripley as well. And Ripley is a you know like I think uh, uh, Highsmith wrote five books about Ripley. You oh, know, see, and, see, and... I never see that that might be why I'm not 
getting it because this is my this is my this is my one window. Right, and I I've never read those books. I've seen uh, Ripley's Game, the Liliana Cavani film, where um, uh, Ripley's played by John Malkovich. This was uh, adapted into a Rene Clément film, uh, Purple Noon. And Wim Wenders, I think, made a film. I haven't seen this called American Friend, mm. where um, Dennis Hopper plays Ripley. Um, so Ripley is a sort of a well-established character type, and and I think. You know, I still get from this film, though, the sense that he believes, you know, that Ripley fundamentally uh, has a distaste for the people who have wealth and don't appreciate it. And and he, you know, ultimately, that's why he gets he gets angry with these people like they don't appreciate the things that they have. I don't think and he, he does has nothing that I think. I think he gets he gets annoyed or, or, or angry with people that push him aside. Like, for instance, there's a lot of characters in this movie that have a bunch of things that he doesn't get angry at or kill. Like, (laughs) right? Like, it's really these people that he has an emotional connection with or wants to be, again, sort of in the light of or or would want desperately to be or that are in the way of one of those two things. I don't think it has to do with he thinks he'd be better off with the money than anybody with the money. I think it has to do more with he's... Uh, he wants to be around this person. They reject him. So now he's going to basically try to be this person to kind of be around this person because that's the kind of person that he wants to be anyway. You know? like I think, but I guess... Uh, I think I'm, tr- I'm giving a reading of the film as a morality tale, right? And are you... Uh, it's, it's, it's okay if you disagree with my reading, but... What's your reading of this film as a morality tale? What do I think it's saying on a moral level? Yeah. Um, Or just what does he think the story is saying? I mean, there's a, I mean, it's funny. I I kind of break it into like a simple thing. The first thing was, and this isn't exactly true, but the first thing that came to my mind was be careful what you wish for. I think I think that's a good reading. I think that's actually a really good reading. Um, but to get there, I think it's more along the it's 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 kind of a cautionary tale of this. I might not be a hundred percent correct, but like not knowing yourself, or or that's not entirely true, uh, or or coveting other people to the point where you don't exist. Mm. Uh, that those are the sort of two takes I would give it. I uh, do. You, what's, what's the moral backbone? What's the moral sort of the moral of the story for, for, for you in this? The, for me, the moral of the story is that we, you can bury your soul um, through the actions you take. And, you know, like Ooh, Dick, that's Tom, fun. Tom, Tom, you know, literally says the, the so one thing I love about Anthony Minghella, um, you know, I, I adore I, I, I wrote a Twitter feed about Anthony Minghella like a year ago, like just randomly where I went through all of his films because, you know, he died very young. He died at 54. Yeah. Uh, he only made, you know, six films, I think, in his time. 
Uh, yeah, and and you know, one of them was the English patient, the other was the talented Mr. Ripley, yeah. the other was Cold Mountain. You know, like the guy had an amazing career, and I think if he was still alive today, we'd probably think of him in the same way we think about David Lean. Sure. You know, like he would be this sort of uh, magisterial directorial force in our lives. In this seventy-six um, part tweet, I will. <laughs> I, I look, I do that from time to time. I, I just write random things about uh, filmmakers I love, and the one thing about Mingella. Um, that I absolutely adore. And I think it, it's like, this is my favorite Mingala film. I, I, you know, like uh, the English patient kind of got maligned uh, over the years, probably because of a great Seinfeld episode <laughs> where nobody wanted to go to the, nobody wanted to go see the English patient and the fact that it won every Oscar, you know, that year. Um, but, you know, like people think his films are antiquated and slightly boring. And, and, and I think for me, the thing that I love about The Talented Mr. Ripley is that it is antiquated, it's not boring, and the, it's something that I, I think is very hard to find in filmmakers, but this is a film where characters are speaking the subtext all the time. Like, they're mm. telling you the subtext of the movie, like, throughout the entirety of the movie. And it completely works because he's such a great writer, and he's, he, he knows... He's also cinematic in his writing, you know, like he knows how to write uh, poetry from his characters. And so Ripley in this film, you know, has an entire monologue. Of, and it's the it's the most hideous monologue that you can imagine on paper. It's it's a monologue about like, don't you just wish that sometimes, you know, like you have these secrets that you hide in a basement under the house and that you could give it to someone and say, here's the key. You know, like, and then, and then later he gives, uh, yeah. uh, you know, that character the key. And then as he comes in to murder that character, he says, I'm going to be locked in the basement forever. You know, like he's literally speaking the subtext of this film. Um, and, and it, the, <laughs> then it's the, just the text. <laughs> yeah. It's literally, you know, like it's the subtext is out in the open right now. Yeah. Um, but, but it just works so beautifully. And I think this is, this is a film about the, not to me, it's not about the 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 emptiness of Ripley's soul. It's about the fact that he causes the actions to bury what little trace of soul that he had. And I, I you know, the thing that I think works about this film is the first half of the movie. It's it's long before we get to the point where he murders uh, Dickie. But we fully, even if we don't think that his actions are right, we're fully invested in the actions that he takes. You know, like like. I'm angry at Dickie the whole time on that boat. I'm pissed off at Dickie for not taking him on the, you know, like for, for suddenly abandoning him. I hate Freddie. You know, like Freddie just infuriates me at every turn. Um, and, and then the film, you know, kind of like in that brilliant Hitchcockian way, takes the, you know, puts us in his shoes for the entire back half of the movie. And we're kind of on edge to see if we can, you know, like if he can get out of the situation, like you said yourself. And, and I think the morality tale for me is, you know, like the great loss of this person that would, you know, like that is a lover of all the things that Dickie and his friends sort of ignore, you know, like he and he and he observes so acutely, like he's a he's a forger. He he sees their art, you know, like he takes a lot of time to create himself in that world. Mm -hmm. And all of that is for naught because he is ultimately um, a facsimile of a human being, yeah. you know, like the the beautiful thing at the at the end 
is that he has found his one true, you know, he's found this great love in his life. Um, but his actions mean that he will no longer, you know, he can't, you know. And I was kind of like, the, the amazing thing there is that when um, when Meredith appears on the boat, I was like, oh no, he's going to have to kill him now. Yep. And I was like, you know, I felt that way. And the amazing thing in that final shot is he's completely still. You know, like he's not crying. He's not upset. You know, like he's just still. Uh, it's just a genius trick of filmmaking here. And it's a genius. Um, th- it's why I come back to this film over and over and over again. It's so rich in detail and, you know, subtext that's on the surface level. It's it's just uh, astonishing. I love this film so much. Yeah, it was very good. I'm, I was very happy that uh, that you cheated and that we <laughs> had to watch the, this film because, again, I... It was one of those ones that, like, I had in the back of my brain that I'd seen, and then I realized I hadn't. I was like, holy shit. And it definitely holds up to all of the hype and the sort of cultural zeitgeist that uh, caused me to believe I had seen it for so long. Just, um, I mean, even if you if you haven't seen it as well, just seeing these movie stars like at the precipice uh, of their careers, uh, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Kate Blanchett, Philip Seymour Hoffman, kind of at the very beginning. Kate Blanchett. Ugh is the most attractive human being to, I've ever seen in my entire life. You should listen to, I think, uh, on David Fincher's commentary for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, he talks about like walking into a room with Kate Blanchett and forgetting why he was there in I the first imagine. place. I couldn't Yeah. And th- that's not just like this time period, Kate Blanchett. That's literally every time period I've ever seen Kate Blanchett. I, I don't... <laughs> it's it's insane. Um, yeah, no, all I, the I, actors here are are a hundred percent spot on it is um a highly effective movie that sort of gets you th- uh it, it it both washes over you and then what i really it's it's my favorite kind of thinking person's movie <laughs> in the moment i was not thinking about what everything meant afterward I deep dove into what I sort of believed it was trying to do and what was going on and what was Ripley's this, that, and the other thing, right? But it was never it was never flashy enough to knock me out of the story to have me start, like, thinking about it in that moment. Like, I'll even go back to um, the film we did a couple weeks ago, The Platform. Was that last week? Time is uh, a construct. It was last week, yeah. Time know. is meaningless now. Um, that movie I loved, but oftentimes I would get knocked out because of the allegory that was going on and I would think about it actively while a scene was going on. There's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't let you have that washoverness the entire time like, say, the talented Mr. Ripley did for me. So I really appreciate when a film can basically give me both versions of what I love about cinema. Have me be completely lost in a story, but then also afterward give me a lot to think about my internal reads of what happened, as opposed to doing one or two of those things at the same time. Uh, I really love it. I, I'm glad. I'm glad we watched it. And everyone, if you haven't seen it, which you all have, I'm sure, <laughs> um, you should watch it. Uh, and if you have seen it, go watch it again. Oh my God! Yeah, I this is one of those films I can just uh, I could watch at the drop of the hat. But it's one of those films that you know, like I said before, I'm never gonna side watch. I'm never gonna oh, like no. just put it on on the side and have it playing in the background. I don't like, side watch much that many things. Uh, I I think I I there's a lot of things I would side watch, um, but this is one where I was like, you know, th- where I was like, 
I'm gonna get I'm gonna make myself a drink. I'm gonna turn <laughs> off the lights. I'm gonna like get into my comfiest clothes and relax into this. And I was like, and I do not want any interruptions. You know, I want to just go from in to in on this movie. And I I feel you know like I like like I said I love the English Patient uh, and and I quite like Cold Mountain. Uh, this is also edited up uh, just two two side things. This is uh, edited by you know one of the great film editors of all time, Walter Murch, mm-hmm. um, who. Uh, he wrote this book uh, in the blink of an eye, and I think he's he, actually it was a. It, there's an interview book with him and Michael Ogenti, who wrote *The English Patient*, where they're talking about how to construct the the, the subtext of a film, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the idea that um, that there should be something that is hidden to the audience that only the filmmakers know, and that that you that guides you in every decision you make as a filmmaker. And, he, and the the one he describes is that in The Godfather, he, he they like this idea that there was an imaginary spotlight or in the middle of the in the middle of every single frame, and Michael Corleone, Al Pacino's character, is always trying to avoid it. And and in this one. I think the idea here is that there are mirrors everywhere that Tom is actively trying to hide from. Hmm. Um, and it's just this beautiful, you know, like... It's or a break. Sense of, what's that? Or, or break. break. Yeah, yeah. There's, or he runs into or they reflect onto him in sort of interesting ways. Um, and that's, the, that's hackneyed stuff. You know, like the idea of the duality of man and there's two sides to, you know, the coin and all that sort of stuff. That's like pretty stock standard for any thriller. Um, but... Executed by masters here. The other, the other thing is the score by Gabriel Yared. Yeah, I bought the CD to this film and I listened to it repeatedly. Like not just the the sort of you know jazz renditions. Like there's that really kind of awkward performance of My Funny Valentine by uh, by yeah. Matt Damon. That's yeah. that's actually on the CD. Um, and I love the the sort of the Americano song, which uh, I just I think is just fabulous. But the um, the actual musical score, the the pace, the breathlessness of that sort of dun 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 it's is so good. I just yeah, I'm I'm gonna just keep gushing unless you take the mic away. from Well, me at here's this point. the deal. I mean, you brought up the duality of man, which brings us back to Batman Forever because Two Face was a villain in <laughs> ah, that, and that's a yes. pure representation of that. So we'll end it right there, full circle. The talented Mr. Ripley uh, episode brought to you by Batman Forever. Uh, This has been the only podcast about the film, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, Shahir, when you are not imprinting uh, yourself over the lives of people that you admire uh, in the cinematic space, where can folks find you? Am I eventually going to murder these people? Um, you can find me at my uh, my website, <laughs> www.shahirdaud.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are staring into the void of an empty soul, where can people find you? You can find me tricking the dumb cops and then ca- getting caught by the smart ones <laughs> over at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or P-S-N and, of course, Emperor M-S-K on Twitter. Uh, uh, also, check out the good works you're doing over at Extra Credits. We just finished our 24-hour uh, Twitch stream for the hashtag Hope From Home Charities. Actually, if you go back in my Twitter, you can look and find the link uh, to that if you want to still donate. I believe it's still open till. Uh, May 1st, although, nope, this is going to be done by then. You can't. Go donate to other charities and be good people. It was a blast. Um, Shahir, we got to do our first watch party. Yeah, I jumped in at the you very jumped in end at the of, end. Uh, We'll have to Captain talk. America. Yeah, we'll have to talk to. Um, we'll have to talk to uh, our stream overlord Will over there and see if we can get a little crossover action going because that was very fun. It was a good test run of the. I don't, for those of you who don't know, 
um, Twitch, uh, which is also the same company, uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Uh, you can do watch parties now with a very limited select number of titles across uh, a- a- Amazon Prime in the United States. In the uh, United States only. Yeah, but don't worry, Shahir. Listen, you uh, if you happen to uh, find ways around that particular thing, that's fine. But nor would I ever suggest you ever <laughs> do something like that. Uh, I don't have any. Ac- I don't have uh, anything that rhymes with VPN. That's okay. But, um... <laughs> da, 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 da. More like, more like, see VPN. you then when you take your digital vacation across the internet <laughs> borders. Uh, it, it was cool, and you get, we, basically you get to watch a movie with a with a group of people or creators that you like, and you can also mute them and shut them up if you just want to <laughs> hear the movie for a while. So it was very very fun. We'll have to start doing Captain that. America is a movie I would side watch. Okay. That's this is why you weren't invited. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anywho, uh, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in and listening and your ears. Also, uh, I, I, you know, I do this every time, or I should. Uh, you know, subscribe, like, stars, tell people, you know the drill. We are nothing if not shills that just want desperately the light of your internet affection. Uh, uh, yeah. Much like... Uh, a certain talented uh, uh, Ripley man. Believe it or not, uh, we are nothing, uh, if not empty. Uh, yeah, what are we? Uh, what, what should we do next week? Do you want to do Scott Pilgrim? I want to do Scott Pilgrim at some point. Uh, we still got this Lord of the Ring episodes. I'm, I'm gathering material for the Lord of the Ring episodes. Yeah, that's going to be in a little bit. I mean, we could do Scott Pilgrim. Uh, we could do Six Underground. We could do another poll. Could do another poll. We could yeah. get on the poll yet again, and then we'll just get Hustlers again. I mean, I'd watch it. <laughs> Zoe, what well, do you showgirls. think? We should do Showgirls. Should, should we do, we showgirls? do showgirls? I don't know. I think we should do Showgirls. One, I... of, the, the, one of the the most talked about bad movies of all time. There's a great uh, tweet, uh, uh, I think Instagram feed, where uh, Audrey Plaza is recreating scenes from Showgirls, and it's amazing. Aubrey Plaza? Aubrey Plaza. Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, it's it's amazing. All right. you got to watch it. Well, we'll uh, do. Hey, tell you what. You know what, everybody? Here's what I can promise. We'll talk about a movie next week. We will. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Unless one of us murders the other. Well, that's going to be hard in this world of social isolation. Yeah, You're going to have to, we're going to have to really work on our. I on really our... have a limited number of masks, and I can't. Uh, I, 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 the washing of the hands after the murder would be. Of course, be brutal. of course. And, and my paintball gun just doesn't have enough CO2 to really do any damage. So we're kind of, we're kind of done on that front. Well, with that. Hey, maybe next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.